I'm here today with Victoria Lourdes. Victoria is the author of a new book titled Church of the Wild, How Nature Invites Us into the Sacred. Victoria is a spiritual director and co-founder of the Wild Church Network and Seminary of the Wild. She's founding pastor of the Church of the Wild in Ohio, Ohio, Ohio. 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 Sorry about that. Ohio, California, and Bellingham, Washington. She earned her MDiv from Fuller Seminary and has a background in strategic planning, product development, and marketing with large organizations like the Walt Disney Company, WellPoint Insurance, and World Vision. She's become a leading voice for including the natural world as a companion in the spiritual journey. Victoria's work and ministry have been covered by Spirituality and Health, Religion News Service, and many other outlets. And she began the research for this book with a grant from Louisville Institute's Pastoral Study Program. Victoria lives in Bellingham, Washington, and you can learn more about her at victorialures.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A-L-O-O-R-Z.com. So, Victoria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. I'm happy to be here. As I was mentioning um, before we started the interview, I just really enjoyed reading your mm, book. Um, thank you. I made it a priority on my vacation to make sure that I read this book. And uh, It's a good one to read on vacation, that, <laughs> especially if you read I it do. outside <laughs> in a hammock. <laughs> that is my vacation, is reading. <laughs> Almost. But in any event, before we get into the book, um, maybe you could share with folks uh, more about your background. You've got, you know, a lot of different experiences. Yeah, that's that bio is kind of funny because that's that feels like a lifetime ago that I was in the corporate world. Um, but I, I've spent an aggregate of, uh, you know, almost 30 years in and out of the church as a as a pastor and um, a dozen or more years as a leader of a, of a nonprofit organization in the climate movement with my son that I started um, with him. And so in in both of those journeys, I was seeking to be able to do something that I couldn't articulate then, but I can articulate now looking backwards because life is sort of like that. You, you can see it better when you look backwards. And, I, and I've been on this journey for the last 30 some years to reconnect our spirituality with the natural world, both from the side of, um, of the church and from the side of, you know, the, the environmental movement. And long story short, I, I hit burnout in both of those roles. I was able to, um, you know, there's just something built into both of those roles, you know, uh, being on the, being, being called into work of, uh, as a transformation agent, perhaps, is a good way to say it. Um, but there's just something built in. It's not linear. There's, you, you can run these campaigns in, in the climate movement and, and raise a lot of money and get a lot of people involved. And uh, maybe, maybe you'll be able to change a little local legislation. But the CO2 levels keep going up, that kind of thing. So um, there's something just kind of built in that, that leads to burnout, that you're, you're looking for change, and yet you're not going to see that change within your lifetime, perhaps. And um, for me, when I hit the burnout, um, both as a pastor several years ago and as a, a sort of movement leader, um, 
I, I was, I found myself being drawn to uh, this particular tree, uh, oak tree, and, and they're just like, just having nothing, having nothing to give, just, just being in that empty place. And it was, it was there that I, that, that the story started to reshape within me, that there, that there's something we're missing by being disconnected. Uh, divided by, divided from the rest of the natural world. There's something that not only is dangerous to the natural world, but is also dangerous to us as humans and to our spiritual lives. And that that became um, sort of that that moment, that fulcrum moment, where I started to to investigate why is this so separated? Why are we so separated in within the church from the rest of the natural world? And why are we so you know, even within the climate movement, um, faith communities were seen as somebody else to get involved in our movement, you know, mm, <laughs> versus really seeing that, you know, there's a humongous need for the church to be involved in, in uh, as, as a safe place to process the grief that comes up with as you tap into the ecological devastation mm. that's happening, um, mm. much less the the really unseen but very felt loneliness that we feel as a species by being disconnected. And we don't even know that we're disconnected anymore because it's been so many generations that we've um, lost kindred relationship as, as sort of Western, white, European immigrants. Um, that our indigenous brothers and sisters or like the Celtic, the Celtic um, Christian tradition and some other traditions like that haven't really lost their connection with the natural world so i'm not sure if that really answered your question (laughs) (laughs) well it just gives good context you know for how you got here so to speak (laughs) um but you know you obviously were heavily involved in several different things as you mentioned particularly the church and climate activism this book just recently came out Mm-hmm. Did you write books previously when you were well, in this is, other, or is this the first one? This is the first book that I've got that's been published. Um, I've written a lot of proposals, <laughs> a lot of white papers, you know, the kinds of things that, um, that you don't get to edit after the deadline. <laughs> I, I loved that I got, oh, I get to rewrite this now after the first draft. That was fun. <laughs> so what was the process of this book? happening then how how did what motivated you to write it how did it come together um well it was part of my um uh, my awakening of this unnecessary disconnection from uh you know my tradition was christianity the unnecessary disconnection from uh, nature that that my spiritual tradition lived in like my experience of the sacred throughout my life was most real in connection with with the natural world. And yet when I, when I became uh, involved in the church in my twenties, um, that was clear. It was in an evangelical, um, an evangelical community. And it was clear to, you know, I was told, you know, God is not in a tree. That's pantheism or something like that. Like there were, there were pejorative names for, um, for experiencing or worshiping God in nature. And it just didn't make sense to me, but my first, um, my first job out of seminary was working with an evangelical uh, organization uh, called 
um, World Vision that does relief and development work internationally. And my role was a you know, research and policy development um, director. And I would research different global issues and, and, um, and write white papers and recommendations and things like that. And the whole time I was pregnant with my son, I wrote about um, you know, the impact on, on uh, marginalized communities of ecological devastation, you know, how that impacted them. And, um, and that was really my first awakening to go, oh, there's something here. Because I, I approached it in a way of like, this is not a liberal agenda. You know, this is, this is part, of, uh, part of our own tradition. And so that, that began my um, curiosity. And, um, you know, so it was just kind of like it, it, my invitation in was experiential as a, as a, before I connected with the Christian church. And then it was kind of almost academic. <laughs> um, and, then I, and then as I, um, after, after that, I became a pastor and I kept trying to, um, be involved in parts of the church that would bring people into direct communion with God versus, um, you know, talking about God. And so I did things like centering prayer and experiential labyrinths and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and that was always, the, that transformation was always at the core of what I wanted to do as a pastor. But it, it was great. It was interesting and people liked what I did, but it didn't really seem to, there was something always blocking. There was something always in the way of that transformation for people. And, um, and then I, I basically burnt out and left the church for, um, you know, for seven years. It was, I left completely. I, I left being a pastor. I left going to church. And that's when I when, when I did this nonprofit work with youth in the climate movement, and um, and there was you know it was all about legislation. It was all about movement and raw. We're going to do this and and turn off your lights and don't drive SUVs <laughs> and that kind of thing. But there was still something missing, you know. And and it wasn't till that burnout <laughs> that I that 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 tree moment I told you about before really happened and. And, um, and so that's when I started to recognize and investigate and say, wait a minute, what, that work I used to do with, with the environment, you know, which what I call it then, um, is, is connected with, with my spiritual journey. And, there, and I'm missing something here. And so I started to investigate and, and see, is this really, you know, not outside of my tradition? Is this something that I can, I can no longer be a Christian? And uh, or identify as a as a Christian, um, and at the same time, love the natural world, and and be involved in work that um, you know protects and is in relationship with not just not just as a steward, but in in deep relationship with these more than human others that I'm that are my home, and um, and that's when I started to discover that no, actually, it is deeply this connection is deeply woven into my own, you know, spiritual tradition. It's deeply woven into both the, you know, what we Christians call a, the Old Testament, <laughs> as well as the New Testament. It's 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 every single. I started looking at it with different eyes. Like I had a new lenses to to read those old myths and stories, and. And that this, this, you know, my book is called How Nature Invites Us into the Sacred, 
Well, the sacred is also calling us into the wild, into, into nature. And every single spiritual leader was drawn, called, pushed <laughs> into the wilderness on purpose by, by the holy, by God. Every single one of them. And so, uh, you know, from, from the people of Israel, Moses, um, all of the prophets, Jesus, John the Baptist, Paul, all of them were called into nature. And, and as a pastor, I kept sort of spiritualizing that and saying that that was, you know, we have our own wilderness moments, you know, kind of like dark night of the soul. But I was like, wait a minute, this isn't just a metaphor. This is a reality and the, and the, the hawks and the soil and the clouds and the rivers played a role. There's something happening in that wilderness that that was the intention of God that's, that's in every single one of these ancient stories. And um, as, I, as I started to do that reckoning, um, I, I was able to see these are falsely disconnected. And there's a huge consequence to not only the earth by uh, when we disconnect with something, we tend to objectify it so that we can conquer it. You know, it's pretty hard to... Um, to, you know, deforest an entire acres and acres of land and trees if you have a sacred relationship with them. It just shifts the, the, your relationship. It shifts the way you see the others. You know, it's, a, it's the same kind of divide that we see in, um, in our culture against, you know, people pitting against one another in such polarity right now. We have to other the others. We have to call them names and, um, you know, uh, objectify them and demonize them, in effect, um, so that we can be right and they can be wrong. And uh, they can, you know, and I get why throughout uh, generations the, the wild was a scary place and some place to be, um, to be feared, but I'm not sure that was always the I think humans were in deep connection with with nature, were in deep connection with the natural world, and those things that were feared were part of you know an, an emerging empire that had an agenda to disconnect people from their land so that they could take it, um, to disconnect that that deep spiritual connection that we humans sort of naturally have uh, with the rest of the natural world. Uh, so I really call this work uh, remembering. We're remembering something that's deeply indigenous to us. It's deeply embedded in who we are in our own DNA. And it's a remembering ourselves as members of, of a wider community beyond our own species of interconnected relationship. And now I forgot what your question was. <laughs> how, did, how did you end up turning that into a book, basically? Well, then the way, you know, so I was living this and, and uh, going, oh my gosh, and when I we can talk about it in a bit, when, when the idea of logos as a conversation uh, blew my mind, um, when, I, when I discovered that, it was like, this is, this is something that has to be shared. And um, I had written things throughout my life, and I'd been told a lot, you know, you're a good writer, you should write a book. And, um, and so I'd been planning about, I had been planning writing a book of, uh, around this idea of conversation with the natural world as, as central and core to our spirituality. And my sister and I had been talking about writing a, a book about this. And, um, 
but it just never got anywhere. We just kept talking about it. <laughs> and, um, and then um, all of that journey is relevant because a publisher at Broadleaf had been sort of following me. And she, she was the acquisitions editor at a new imprint of uh, Fortress Press called Broadleaf that wanted to reach out beyond the Christian um, audience into sort of more spiritual but not religious people who had, um, there's, and there's, there's actually a lot of people in this group <laughs> who have been in the, in the Christian tradition but sort of not re resonating anymore, but not really ready to leave, and people who have left the Christian tradition but can't fully disconnect. But this, this issue of disconnection from the natural world is core to people in, in that um, audience. So she'd been following the work that I'd been doing with the Wild Church Network and Church of the Wild and Seminary of the Wild um, and contacted me one day and said, have you thought about writing a book? <laughs> so that's, that's so how great. it that came so about. Great. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, within the publishing industry, uh, as you well know from your earlier experience, it's very difficult to get a book deal. Yeah. And uh, I deal a lot with people like Valerie Weaver Zercher, who was your acquisitions editor at Broadly, and um, you know, interview them a lot about it. And uh, you know, they dislike the aspect of their job where they have to say no so many times. Mm. But um, you know, one of the exciting parts of their job is that they get to be scouts, so to speak. You know, in that um, they keep their antenna up. And they're looking for certain things and uh, either topics or attributes or, you know, a variety of um, things that they're interested in. So, yeah. um, you know, th this is by no means the first case that I know of where um, an author basically was contacted by the publishing house and encouraged, you know, to think about writing a book. So that's, that's really good that, um, you know, all the work that you did that preceded that, right? I mean... Uh, came to that kind of fruition. Yeah, sort of like following following your heart, following your passions, doing the thing, and the and the and then and then once you do the thing, then the opportunities to share that kind of do open up a little bit magically. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I've had numerous conversations about <laughs> the serendipity. That of magic. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, the magic. Um, so. In your book, you make a distinction between of the wild and in the wild. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. It, it's, um, so when I first started a community that I called Church of the Wild, um, I didn't know of anybody else that was, that was doing this, that had left buildings that were, that were intentional about part of the reason to do this is to reconnect with the natural world as sacred. And... Um, so when we started, I, I, I did discover the forest church movement in England. And um, I researched, um, I love the etymology of words. <laughs> and so I researched what the word, where the word forest came from because I was living in Ojai, California, which is not a forest. It's a chaparral um, region where there's oak trees and shrub, shrub oaks and stuff. And, um, and, and I found out that forests first became a word in sort of medieval England when, when it was like one of the few places that weren't deforested so that the kings could um, hunt deer. And I have a special relationship with deer, so I didn't like that. So I was like, I'm not going to be a forest church. So, um, 
so I don't know, just kind of the, the word, the, the phrase Church of the Wild came to me, one of those middle of the night muse moments. Um, and every word of that is important to me. Like I, there's a lot of wild churches that, that don't use the word church because the majority of people that come to the, the gatherings are not identified with a Christ tradition in any way, including all of the services that I've led. Um, um, but putting it with wild kind of reframes it. And it's not just church in the wild. It's not just doing what we do inside of a building and taking it outside and, you know, setting the rows up in, in facing toward the front and um, having the one person tell everybody else what they think and everybody else says amen and sings a song. Um, so I'd been doing a lot of deconstructing the worship service as I was working in indoor churches um, for several years. Um, this was my opportunity to really really do what I felt called was needed in a worship service, not just um, to serve the land well, but to serve our own souls well and to really enter into direct relationship with the sacred rather than talk about it. And, um, and so Church of the Wild is, is that the wild beings are the preachers, the co-congregants, they're part of that beloved community. And the, that the experience is an opportunity to connect with these others as preachers, as co-congregants, as friends, as kin, and to engage in, in um, connection <laughs> and engage in practices that reconnect us um, in intimate relationship with, the, with these others. And so that means learning how to listen to a tree, <laughs> learning how to listen to, you know, and, and that's, you know, sounds kind of funny and, we, and we're uncomfortable saying, you know, the tree said to me. Um, but but the, more, the more theological work that I did to understand the, the deep interconnection that we, that we have, these interconnected web of all beings um, is the presence of Christ. <laughs> Um, the more it's like, okay, I can just, I can just say this. I can just tell people, go out. The, the majority of the worship services, if we want to call it that, are um, a 45 minutes to an hour of the time where people go out into, you know, go out from the circle. We sit in a circle. They go out from the circle as a threshold and wander and allow yourself to be drawn to a particular place and settle into that place or before a particular tree or squirrel or you know whoever is kind of calling you. And, and just with curiosity and openness, um, allow, allow your, it's kind of like I call it Terra Divina, like Lectio Divina, which is an ancient monastic practice of, um, of hearing the holy in the words of scripture. This is hearing the holy in the words of the, of the first scripture. It used to be called the first book of Revelation was nature. Um, not revelation like the end of the world, but rev of revealing truth, you know, revealing the presence of the holy. And so just in that interaction, um, what comes to you? What, how are you able to connect with this other? How can you um, just really see and appreciate and experience the other as sacred? And what does that say about the, the divine, the Christ in you and that what's that connection between where is that the presence of Christ and then they come back together and share that and so that that conversation like we learn from one another so it's not just one pastor you know preaching to everybody else what their opinions are 
but everybody is part of that. And so it's really in the wild. It's in relationship with the wild that that is the vision of this movement. It's very, very interesting. Um, and so you touched on this earlier. One of your chapters <clears throat> deals with the retranslation, for lack of a better word, from in the beginning was the word to in the beginning was the logos. So can you talk about how you found that and what the meaning is? Honestly, I don't remember where I first discovered it. Um, I think my sister sent me an article. (laughs) Um, And it was a mind blower. So the the Greek word is logos. In the beginning was the logos. So that's the the Greek word there. And so I started investigating what does this word mean? And, um, and found out, you know, that it, it had been coined by the, by, by the by Greek philosopher five, about 500 years before the Gospel of John was written. And, um, and it meant, you know, this, this, uh, this sacred aliveness between, in and between all things. He was, this Heraclitus was the Greek philosopher, and he also coined the word, word cosmos for the first time. You know, that, every, that, that, that reality is much bigger than we think, <laughs> and that all things are connected, and that there's this, um, and, so, and so it's this, and, and he used the word, and philosophers after him used the word conversation, is what this, this logos meant. It's the conversation between all things, that, that there's something in that. And so when uh, the writers of the Gospel of John at that time in the first century in Rome, that was a really common word, logos. They knew what that meant. They knew it meant this conversation between all things. And so the writers of the Gospel of John, I've, I discovered, realized this is a great way to explain what we're trying to say about Christ, that, that Jesus is the embodiment of this Christ, this, this sacredness in and between all things. And so it made sense. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the conversation. And the conversation was with God. And the conversation was God. And all things that were created were created with this conversation. And like that blew my mind. <laughs> because I'd also been researching some, um, my sister and I really were researching the, um, the, the quantum physicists were, were just were putting the same language to their research to see that at the center of all things, you know, like they were looking for the atom, the, the, the smallest possible thing, you know, the smallest possible noun. And they found that it, that it wasn't the smallest thing, that there were, there were subatomic particles, but they weren't really particles. They weren't really nouns at all. They were actually act- activity. It was actually relationality. It was actually conversation that is at the center of all things. So it's like, oh my gosh, these ancient philosophers, these early, you know, Christian religion, um, uh, uh, what's the word, theologians, and these quantum physicists, and the quantum physicists were looking to indigenous languages to find verb-based language to describe what was going on at the center of, of these atoms. Because we are such a noun-based culture that there, were, there was no way to describe what was actually happening. And, um, and so the, what indigenous religions and cultures know that, that all things are connected, that, that it's that relationality is very a verb-based relationality, not a noun-based, um, you know, uh, 
worldview. And um, yeah, so when I discovered that, that, that in the beginning was the conversation, it just really blew my mind. And then it was confusing, like, well, why do we say, why is it translated as word? Because the, the Latin translation up until the fourth century for logos was always conversation. And, you know, as you translate it into English. Um, but then I started researching what happened in the fourth century. <laughs> and anybody who knows this, the history in Rome uh, at the time uh, knows that, that, you know, Rome was, was kind of a little bit uh, sketchy. They had these four different emperors that were fighting for, you know, they were sharing. It was a way to save the empire was have these four different regions. Well, Constantine managed to murder the other three and became the one and only emperor. And he uh, sort of adopted the Christian, um, uh, not so much religion, but the Christian um, language and sort of uh, uh, decriminalized Christianity a bit and, um, and used the Christian images on his war uh, sort of banners and, and, sword and uh, shields and stuff and kept winning. And so Christianity was a good thing, but he, but all of these different people by the fourth century had different ideas of what this new religion was all about. And they were this noun-based Greek culture trying to integrate this verb-based uh, culture of Hebrew, Hebrew culture, and trying to understand this verb-based culture with nouns, you know? So there was inherent uh, differences. And long story short, um, essentially, uh, what came out of that was a decision <laughs> to shift the, the translation of in the beginning was the logos from in the beginning is the, was the conversation into in the beginning was the word, the one word, the one, you know, and they had, anyway. So that, and they wanted to shut down the conversation. <laughs> They wanted to, Empire had an agenda to, to shut down that conversation. We just want one way because there's one emperor here. There's, you know, and anybody who disagrees is going to be called a heretic and going to be either shoved out or killed or exiled, um, you know, the way of Empire. So One of the many examples of using religion uh, for absolutely. warfare and power. Absolutely. It's, it's, it, was, it was really the beginning of using the Christian uh church as a weapon of weapon. mass destruction <laughs> yeah 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 so uh, so i don't want to spoil the book you know for anyone uh, in particular the parts that you wrote about the deers mm. but i'd love for you to maybe talk about your first uh you know yeah. kind of close encounter so to speak yeah it was really the you know i did this this theological um inquiry followed experience as 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 spirituality often does. It's an experience of the sacred that leads into the theological inquiry. And for me, it was an experience um, with a series of uh, mule deer in the Rocky, the lower Rocky Mountains um, several years ago. Um, it was part of what we were, when we were first beginning to envision Seminary of the Wild, we had we had been discovering, um, you know, that there's that deep connection with the natural world was key for for transformation, <laughs> and um, and I'd started to to do some of this theological inquiry 
um, and I had suspicions, and I, and I remembered times in my life where I had connected with the sacred in the natural world. Um, but it was this experience that really shifted it for me. Um, I, uh, we, at, at Seminary of the Wild, we, the center of it is experiential. And so we send people out into their own places, into their own wildish places, um, with, with kind of an invitation to experience that place um, as sacred, to, ex to, to engage in um, your own journaling or conversation um, in relationship with, with the natural world. And, um, and, this, and so, so we were doing this intentionally. We were going out, wandering um, with an openness to listen um, for a couple hours at a time and then coming back and sharing what we, what we experienced. And um, it's, to make a long story short, three days in a row, uh, I had this experience where I was, uh, uh, I'll t share the first experience, but I, I we kind of went out there to, um, to just wander and I saw this deer and I'm like, okay, just not even thinking, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna follow this deer. And I followed this deer up a little ravine and just kind of scrambling, it's starting to rain, scrambling after this deer, thinking by the time I get there, there's going to be gone. I don't even know why I'm doing this, but get up there and this deer is waiting for me almost. She's like 15 feet in front of me and just kind of looking right at me, watching me scramble up this hill. And um, anybody who's encountered deer kind of close up, you know, understands that sort of staring at one another that they do. And, um, and I just saw in her eyes very quickly she moved from, you know, like, are you a predator to her eyes just kind of like softened and, and was clear, okay, you're not a predator and didn't move, just kind of like started, her, her ears flicked and she kind of looked around, um, you know, started listening to the other sounds, had determined that I was, that I was not a threat to her. And, um, and it started to rain a little bit more. I, I pulled a little closer to her to be under a tree. She didn't move, didn't mind. And so now she's maybe, I'm terrible at guessing space, but about 10 feet away from me. And she looks back at me and looking straight into my eyes, she buckles her front legs and then buckles her back legs and she lays down. And I just, I started crying just like, oh my gosh, this is such a gift to be this close <laughs> to this wild uh, deer that feels uh, comfortable with me. And, um, yeah, so I just kind of stayed there a little while. It got, started to get dark and she was, she was settled down for the night. And, you know, after a while I just was like, oh my gosh, I need to go back. I can't wait to tell the guys about what, what I just got to experience. And, um, and she didn't get up when I said goodbye, I left and, um, and, and I heard something inside me, which, which I would normally say, you know, sort of like. I heard the voice of God or something in, in my own voice, within my own you know, heart. I heard, I'll be with you always. It's like, oh, cool, you know. I, I, heard, I, encountered, I encountered, you know, God here or something like that. Um, the next day, uh, on another one of these wanders, nothing really happened. You know, I'm getting a little bit cranky about it and... I'm wandering back. Oh, and this, this first wandering was called, you know, having this encounter with your inner beloved, kind of a Jungian term about that, that part of you that um, um, 
you know, that part of you that never changes, that essence part of you that, that, that loved you. Um, and so I had this inner beloved moment with this, with this deer. And I'm coming back. So that's the next day. I'm coming back from my, from my wandering. And I'm like, oh, you know what? In my own head, I'm going, I never called in my inner beloved. And right when I thought that, another deer that looked a little different jumped over the, the path that I was on and went up another ravine. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's like that tingly feeling of like what is happening here. <laughs> I scramble up after here and her and just about exactly the same thing happens where, you know, we're, we're staring at each We're looking at each other. I'm in the middle of the field. She's over on the side. As she's looking right at me, she buckles her front legs and then buckles her back legs and lay down. And I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> and the third day, you know, I see a third deer about to leave where I was. I was about to go home. And a third deer is like way back in the brambly bushes. You know, I can like barely see her, but we're like staring at each other. I'm getting a little bit dizzy and I feel inside of me like, you know what? I think I'm the one that's supposed to lay down. But this makes no sense because I definitely won't see her if I lay down, but okay, whatever. So I lay down. I'm just kind of laying there going, what is happening with these deer? This is so weird. And this deer comes up to me <laughs> and looks at me as I'm laying down and I, my heart almost stopped. I mean, it was just like, you know, that twinkly feeling where you're like, this is something happening here. There's something magical, uh, mysterious happening. And um, she looks right at me. And within a short period of time, it's just like takes, takes a look at me, twitch, twitches her hair, starts eating a few little leaves and walks out to the meadow. And I follow her to the meadow. And the same thing happens where she lays down. And I sit in the meadow with her for over an hour where she's all four legs are like stretched out. I haven't even seen a deer lay like that. And, um, and it was really like this unbelievable encounter where I recognized that that was, yes, the voice of God. And yes, the voice of the deer. And yes, the voice of my soul somehow mysteriously is that, oh, they just walked up. <laughs> my neighborhood deer just walked up to the window. <laughs> um, and it, that that, um, <laughs> it's Mary. Who I write about in the book. Um, oh my goodness! Yeah, isn't that funny? You want to see her? Yeah. Oh goodness! Hi, Mary. <laughs> How amazing! But um, but it was this. I recognized that this wasn't just a spiritual encounter. It was definitely that. Um, but it was an invitation into relationship that didn't really kindle into uh, actual relationship for quite a while, about five years. Um, that you know, you introduced you to Mary. So that whole story is in the book, but yes, um, yes. but it really we'll, we'll, we'll save that. For yeah, book, I, I won't. Know, I won't share that. That's <laughs> equally as fascinating as what you just shared. But but it wow. really opens so, up that reality that this is not just like metaphor. This is not just like an interesting, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. odd encounter. But there's something sacred happening that we've been so disconnected <clears throat> from for so many generations that we hardly know how to recognize it. So before we finish up, there's uh, just a couple other things I wanted to touch on. One of them is um, you, you, you said briefly about the Seminary of the Wild. Um, that's an experiential, um, ongoing program, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. Yeah. So we, we have something called a eco-ministry certificate. 
It's a year-long program. We meet uh, weekly on Zoom, <laughs> ironically. Uh, we meet on Zoom to talk about being outside. And, um, but it's really, it's a way to gather with like-hearted others who also feel this calling from spirit and from earth herself into a new kind of service to the world. Um, and and it's, it's deeply connecting with your place, your particular place as sacred, not going to, you know, some retreat center and experiencing that place as sacred, but your own place and mm -hmm. really deepening into relationship with all the more than human others that you are home, that you belong, that you belong with. And um, yeah, so, and then there's... So in, addition, in addition to that, you also co-lead a wild church network? Correct? Yeah. So, so what is that exactly? Yeah. So when I started this Church of the Wild in Ojai, um, I thought it was the only one. I thought it was just kind of like heretical and crazy. <laughs> Until like about three months later, I met I met Wendy Jansen in and she in Toronto, and she had started a church almost exactly like mine. <laughs> she was a Mennonite pastor and started it on the side, and then and then we met. Um, we met others, we met others, and every month we'd meet more and more people and we'd invite them to a monthly Zoom call. And after about nine months, we went, wait a minute, this is a thing. <laughs> and we named it the Wild Church Network, we put up a website, and now there are, you know, a couple thousand people who are starting wild churches or, or have started or are wanting to start um, wild churches all over Canada and the U.S. and in other countries as well. So the Wild Church Network is sort of a, a container for that and a connector mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, building resources and, uh, and really encouraging others to, that they too can start a Wild Church. They don't have to be a pastor. They don't have to be, um, you know, within the Christian church at all. Um, but they can start one in their own community. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Victoria, it's very fascinating. You know, I just really uh, got a lot out of your book and really appreciate you writing Thank it. You. Appreciate you spending some time to, to tell us more about it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you can find more about Victoria and her book at, you know, her website, victorialures.com, L-O-O-R-Z. Um, so, Victoria, congratulations on that and all of your work, and thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate the work that you do in introducing people to new uh, authors and new books. I really appreciate this opportunity. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.